And last week we talked about the character of the Christian, right? The vital signs, that thing called the Beatitudes we looked at. Those are the, the vital signs that will be present, all of them, to some degree or another, in the life of those who God's made alive, which is another way we call Christians, those who have come alive to Him at His expense, not your effort. Um, those, that's the character of the Christian. And tonight we're going to talk about the function or the purpose of the Christian in the world. Jesus hasn't just saved you from something to kind of get you out of hell and into heaven. More importantly, he saved you for something. He saved you for your original purpose so that you could actually be a functional human being again. Able to do what you were always made to do, but that sin and the fall and the brokenness of the world has kept us from. And so tonight we'll look at these three things. I accidentally got them out of order, um, so forgive me on that. We'll see three things about the impact this kingdom of God will have on the world. It'll have a preserving impact, an illumining impact, and a disproportionate impact. So why don't you stand up? It's a short passage tonight. We'll read it. We'll dive in. This is Matthew 5, uh, verse 10 through 16. Coming on the tail end of the, the very last Beatitudes, Jesus says to his disciples... Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you, and of course, the same way they persecuted Jesus himself. You disciples, you're the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. In the same way, you're the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and then put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand so it will give light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we ask you to be present tonight as Rigo has already asked, as Anthem has asked. We call upon you to come and do not just natural things. We can hear. We can hear words. We can process arguments. We can think. But we cannot do the supernatural. We cannot change our hearts. We cannot change our desires. We can't open our blind eyes or undo the foolishness that resides in us. Only you can do that. And so would you please come tonight and do those very things. Work in your people. Work in those who are not yet your people. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thanks. You can take a seat. So, have you ever been in a relationship and you've gotten that text that nobody likes to get that says, we need to talk, or can we talk? Especially in romantic relationships, no one likes getting that text because what it means is what's coming or what needs to happen, one person or the other think, is a DTR to find the relationship, right? And the DTR is necessary because your relationship kind of can't go forward without it. Without a lot of damage being done, I should add that part. And ladies, you're getting what I'm saying much more than the guys are right now. We think, why do we need to define the relationship? Let's just do this. 
But we have to define the relationship before we go forward. So why do we need DTRs? Why are they a thing? Why have they been a thing before there was a name for it? Why do we have to do this? I think the reason why is because before the DTR happens with this person that you're romantically interested in or they're interested in you, the reason we've got to have that pivot conversation is because up until that point, to some extent we've been having kind of a haphazard, unintentional, um, maybe unthoughtful kind of relationship that's kind of just been second nature, subconscious. We haven't really been very strategic about it. Just kind of, it is what it is. And uh, we have to have this pivot point where we say, wait a second, who are we now? What changes as we go forward? So if your status changes and you go from just being friend and friend to boyfriend and girlfriend or something, if your status changes, you, you need that conversation to kind of flesh out how your behavior is going to change. All Answers to all those questions. Who are we now? What am I supposed to call you? Is, is it okay to call you this? Or how much time do we spend together now? What changes from this point going forward? And so we've got to have these conversations to kind of get on the same page with each other. And if we don't, you know what happens. A ton of confusion, right? Mixed signals, feelings get hurt, one person's in it more than the other. It's just, it's a disaster and it causes a lot of frustration. Here is Jesus in Matthew 5 and right after he goes through these kind of describing what a grace-transformed human being looks like. He goes straight into having a DTR with his disciples. He sets up a DTR between his disciples or his followers, Christians, and the world. And For the same reasons you've got to have a DTR in a romantic relationship, you've got to have a DTR with the world if you're a Christian. Jesus thinks so, at least. It's the first thing he talks about after he describes what his people will be like. He says, now this is what they will be like in the world. Here's what that relationship's going to look like. Because just like when you go from friend to friend to boyfriend, girlfriend, when God makes you alive for the first time, you're reconciled to God. You're no longer his enemy. You're not on the run. The thought of God brings uh, peace, not fear or terror or hatred. But you love him now. When that pivot happens, your relationship with the world drastically changes too. And it's got to be defined. That, that going forward, what's it look like for us? Who am I to the world? What is the world to me? How are we supposed to relate to each other? All changes. And it's not common sense. It's stuff you wouldn't necessarily expect. And so God himself has to be the one who defines that relationship for us. Because if we just try to wing it or fake it till we make it or figure it out on the go, it won't work. And if... If you don't wrestle with this, if you don't get clarity about what your relationship with the world or or anyone disconnected from God should look like, the same thing will happen to you that happens to that guy and that girl that never defined the relationship. Tons of confusion, tons of frustration, um, tons of uncertainty about what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to act? How am I supposed to live, right? All of that comes out. If we don't have the DTR with the world, the same way we have the DTR uh, with uh, other people. And on top of that, we become pretty useless and ineffective uh, in the world. Useless to, uh, to the Lord's purposes for you in the world. 
useless to the world itself. We become people who are unhelpful to the world, not a blessing to the world, but just kind of a bump on a log and not really having any impact on the world. And so, how does Jesus define the relationship? How does he describe the impact that his kingdom, or you could say his people, will have in the world? Not should have, mind you, will have. He's simply describing the way it's going to be, not the way you need to go home and try really hard to make happen. He's just saying this is the way it will be with living people in a dead world. He calls us, he says, that his kingdom will have a preserving impact on the world. He says we're the salt of the earth. And again, he doesn't say be salt. He doesn't say be salty. We'll unpack the metaphor in a minute. But just appreciate his verbs. Appreciate his language. He says you are. Present tense. A change has already happened. Your condition is different now. Right? Remember last week we said your behavior, you can't change your behavior and then that changes your condition. Right? But if your condition changes, your behavior will change. Remember that? If your condition changes, your behavior changes. Well, Jesus is saying to the Christian in the room, your condition has changed, therefore your relationship with the world has changed already. You don't have to do it. It happened. You are salt now. So what does that even mean? Here's why that metaphor doesn't resonate with us anymore. We have refrigerators and we have preservatives. Our food is loaded with all these chemicals, that stuff we've never even heard of before. You read the ingredient package... And it's got all these things in it that are just there, not to enhance the flavor, not because they're nutrients. They're just there to keep the stuff you bought from going bad two days later. They're preservatives, right? And we live in a culture and in a moment where everything we eat has preservatives in it. So cheese will last like eight months, right? Salad dressing will last three years. Ketchup lasts a couple of years. None of that would last a week without the preservatives. And we have refrigerators. So you buy like some hot dogs or hamburgers for a cookout or something. A few days later, it's still good because you have a fridge to keep it cold. Would you eat a hamburger if you brought home that meat, left it on your counter for a day? No. You'd get botulism or E. coli and you'd die or something bad would happen to you. But we're talking about the past 60 or 70 years in human history of people who've had those two technologies. Everybody else until 60 or 70 years ago, the way that they preserved food was salt, right? Salt, you cure it. You rub salt on the outside of meat. Why? It it kills any of the bacteria, the germs that are on the surface of that meat that would have eaten through and overtaken it, and it prevents spoilage. Salt preserved meat from decay, from putrefying, from becoming nasty and maggot riddled. Jesus says, Christian, you are salt. And that's the sense in which he means it. There's another way that salt was used in the ancient world as it's used now, right? You use salt every day to draw out the flavor of something, right? Bland stuff, you put salt on to kind of enhance the flavor. Not a ton, just a little bit. He mentions that. That's another use of the metaphor that he's using here. But the primary one is as a preservative. That was the main use in the ancient world. Let's take this slow real quick. Let's look at this image a little bit better. If Jesus says to the Christian, you're the salt of the world, what does that imply about the world? 
What does it assume about the world if he's calling the Christian the preserving agent in it or the preservative that, in a sense, keeps it from putrefying, from rotting, from decaying, from smelling? What does he say about that? And and what does world mean? Well, world means any piece of creation that is still broken, fallen, and at war with God, which could be a person, which could be a system of injustice, which could be be any of these things, which, which could be disasters or tragedies. How is the Christian salt? What does it mean about the world if Jesus is saying it needs salt? Well, he's saying pretty clearly that the world or Jesus' view of the world, if you want to know what Jesus thinks about the world apart from his intervention, his grace, he thinks the world is rotten, that it's decaying, that it's putrefying. To quote Brittany, that it's rank stank. I heard that this weekend. I've never heard that. Everything you say rhymes. Rank stank. That's what Jesus thinks about the world apart from the transforming grace of its maker. The world left to itself isn't getting better. It's getting worse. You engineers know with your thermodynamic laws, the, the, the law of entropy, the law of disintegration, things are not getting better They're disintegrating. They're getting worse. They're spoiling. Martin Lloyd-Jones is an old British preacher. He said it a little bit better than Brittany did. He said, when Jesus says we're the salt of the earth, he, he implies the rottenness that's in the earth. It implies a tendency towards pollution and towards becoming foul and offensive. It is fallen. It is sinful. It is bad. Its tendency is toward evil and toward war. It's like meat, which has a tendency to putrefy and become polluted. The world left to itself is something that tends to fester. So let that sink in, regardless of whether you're a Christian, not a Christian, don't know what you are, or working out your own thoughts about this stuff. If you want to know what God thinks about the world apart from Him, apart from His rescue of it, that's it. Which means you need to take your view of the world, whatever it is, and you need to start kicking the tires on that view of the world and say, why do I believe this is true? What evidence do I have for this optimistic worldview? That everything's going to get better. I talk to people all the time who say, man, medical technology, advancements, social media, digital age, the enlightenment, all this stuff. We know so much about the world. It's all getting better. But don't you know that every generation in human history has said the very same thing? Don't you know in the Iron Age, people were saying, look at our advancements. This is earth-shattering technology. When they invented the wheel, when they invented the steam engine, when antibiotics were developed, when the Internet... Don't you know every generation in human history has said, look at us advancing. And they've all died. And they've all died waiting on salvation, waiting on rescue from the things they thought iron or fire, or the wheel, or the internet, or medical advancements would save them from. If you have an optimistic world view of the world that everything's just great, peachy, clean, it's all going to work out, you have a naive worldview. Don't, look, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just trying to repeat what I hear in the Bible, what I see in the Bible. God would say, your maker would look at you and say, that's wishful thinking. What evidence do you have for that? If you go back even a year in history, it falls flat. It doesn't work that way. The world is disintegrating. 
You don't have to just open the Bible to see evidence for that. Open a history book. Open the newspaper. This is where the world is moving. There's momentum to it, and it's towards entropy and decay and disintegration. If you are a Christian and you have a rosy worldview that everything's just going to be fine, it's all great and dandy, either you haven't suffered or you've lived in a little bubble where your experience of the world is not like any other person's in the world. I guarantee you Western people have it easier than everybody else. So you're either in a little bubble like that, and if you stay in that bubble, you won't be helpful to the world. Why? Because it's like the world is bleeding, the world is heaving for air, the world is in need of rescue, and you're not even far enough along to say, man, the world needs help. The world needs grace. The world needs God. The world needs salt. If you think the meat isn't going to decay because it's just fine as it is, what need would there be to lean into what Jesus says you are, which is salt? So what does Jesus say is the salt of the world? Salt of the earth. Is it diplomacy? Is it the United Nations? Is it medical advancement? Is it technology? Is it if we could just push religion to the side and just love each other and get along and tolerate each other? He doesn't say all of those things have been tried and have failed. Jesus doesn't say any of those things are the salt, the preserving agent of the world that will push back against these decaying forces and processes. He says, you, you are the salt that God has sent into the world to preserve and push back against that decay. So we've talked about what that metaphor implies about the world. What does it imply about you? If you're a Christian, Jesus says this is already true of you. This is the impact you will have to some degree in the world. What does it imply about the Christian? Well, it implies at least that at your very essence, down to your bones and deeper than that, you are distinct. You are different from the world. Salt is different than meat, right? We're not in uh, PhD land right now. We're still in kindergarten. Salt is different than meat. It's distinct from the meat. Jesus says if the salt loses its saltiness, what good is it? It has no preserving impact if it's diluted, right? He says it's of no value. What happens if salt loses its taste? And you pour this kind of diluted salt out of the meat. You just taste the meat. It doesn't preserve it. It doesn't enhance it and make it better. It's just nothing. Jesus says to the contrary that you are distinct from the world. That's what he means when he says you're like salt. You're different. You're distinct. And your helpfulness and usefulness to the world is dependent on your distinctiveness. On you embracing how different you are instead of denying how different you are and trying to assimilate. Salt that tries to assimilate to meat is of no use. Light that tries to assimilate to darkness is of no use. So let's get even a little bit more down to earth. Well, what does it mean that I'm distinct and I'm indifferent, that I'm salt? Like, stop to be an abstract. What does it mean? What does it look like? We've already talked about it. It was all of last week. It's the Beatitudes. It's the blessed are the blessed are the blessed are the. The vital signs, the marks of a person who's been rescued by mercy. 
Simply someone who said, God, I can't do it. I can't change myself. I can't make myself better. I can't measure up. Would you be merciful and do it for me? Boom. Bible says he does it. He doesn't wait. He doesn't tease you. He doesn't wait for you to twist his arm. He doesn't play coy with you. Well, maybe would you really mean it? says he shows you mercy. He makes you alive. Jesus described those people last week. Wasn't it counterintuitive? It's not what you'd think. He says Christians are those who understand they are spiritually bankrupt. Zero dollars in the account. Actually, like negative a ton of money in the account. You're poor and you know it. And so you actually need God's riches. You mourn how far you fall short of God's desires. And so you run back to him and you say, thank you that Jesus didn't fall short of your desires and I am one with him. You are meek and humble. You're not arrogant and boastful and a brat to be around. You know you're nothing in and of yourself. Any good in you is owing to God's kindness to you, not to your own industriousness. He says that Christians or these distinct people are the ones who hunger for God, which implies you need more you need to be we need to be, become more like him. We need to taste him more. That's what Jesus says the Christian is. When he talks about you will be a blessing to the world because you're distinct from it, that's what he means. You're aware of your poverty. You're aware, you're, you mourn, you're, you are meek. You are merciful because you've received merciful, mercy. You don't persecute others, but you bless those who persecute you. Jesus is saying in those specific ways, your humility, your authenticity, your meekness, your generosity, that is how you will bless the world and preserve and push back against these decaying forces that are happening all around us. I bristle and I get annoyed by the language that we use today, and I'm guilty of it too, even though it annoys me, but we're at a moment where we use all this language of like, I just need to accept myself for who I am and embrace who I am. I need to be honest and be true to myself. The problem with that language is oftentimes we say it about the bad stuff about us. This is just who I am. Accept me. And if you, if you get that wrong and you put the stamp of this is just who I am on fallen, broken you, you're, you're celebrating and exalting what's broken, what's bound to decay in you. However, for the people who've been made alive... Or when you are made alive by God, when you cry out for mercy and he makes you new, you should talk like that. You should say, man, I just need to embrace who I am. I need to be who I am. I need to kind of come out in public and say, hey, this is, what's, this is who I am now. Because that's the new you. And the new you does need to come out and go public. And the new you does need to be embraced, does need to be fostered. And cultivated. And this is what Jesus means. The more you embrace the new you and the new purpose you have in the world, the more distinct you will be, the more helpful you will be to the world that is bound to decay. The more you will be a speed bump on that tragic process where everything gets worse. So real quick, a couple of snapshots of what this would look like in real life, and then we push on. Being salt because you are salt, what would that look like to to preserve 
be a preserving agent in the midst of a decaying world. It would look like uh, something like this. Maybe you choose to honor those in authority over you, which could be your professor or your boss or your mom or your dad or your pastor, instead of kind of joining the train of everyone else, throwing them under the bus all the time, bashing them, being uncharitable towards them, assuming the worst about their motives. Do you see how you would be a speed bump on that train to disaster, that train to disintegration, if you are present in that conversation? And simply by just not joining in on that, your salt, what would have, what would have rotted and putrefied, remains intact. You refuse to lie on your timesheet at work, even though it's standard practice where you work. Everybody fudges the numbers. But you don't. Because you know it's stealing money from your boss. And you stem the tide of an entire workplace moving towards theft, moving towards deceit. Not because you stood up on a soapbox and had a moralizing lecture to people. But because you know that you're new. You don't need to steal money from your boss. God will take care of you. It could look like you graciously and patiently confronting your sins, or a better word maybe instead of confront is having a conversation with your friends when they need it about sin in their life that will kill them. Not being salt in that instance would look like keeping your mouth shut to save face, to maintain social standing so that you don't upset them or step on their toes. And they continue down the road of decay and disintegration so that you could save face. This is convicting as we talk about it because I'm thinking through my mind of all the conversations I should be having. But Jesus is pointing towards the goal, the trajectory. Do you see how in these circumstances a Christian or salt could slow down the process of decay? Could make relationships or group uh, project groups or places of employment more enjoyable, more flavorful? more life-giving than life-taking. Jesus said that we would have an illumining impact on the world. He says, you are the light. All the same things we said about Saul apply for this too. We don't have to redo them. You are light, not be light. You already are. Your condition has changed. You are an illumination, an enlightenment in the world. That's what you are now. And, And so he says... Uh, What does that imply about the world? Same thing about the salt, right? The opposite is true. Jesus is implying that if you're the light of the world, that the world is dark. If you're a guide, in a sense, to the world, an illumination in the world, then the world apart from God is groping around in the dark. The world, in a sense, apart from God, is chasing its own tail, thinking it's making progress, right? We're further along, we're further along. You're in the same place. That's what Jesus implies about the world apart from God's mercy, apart from him intervening to be gracious to us. So the Christian's life will have an exposing and illuminating and enlightening effect on the people around us. Why? And what does this mean? Why is because you're connected to Jesus who is the light of the world. You're plugged into the light of the world and so you now glow in the dark. In places of darkness, you look different. I'm not saying you should be different. I'm saying you are different. The question is whether we embrace that distinction and that difference or cloak it. But Jesus says we are different. 
Not because we're better than others, but simply because we reflect the one who has loved us in our sin, in our darkness, in our decay. One has plucked us out of that at his expense and not ours. And so now we bear that light in all of those. The last thing I want to talk about is the flip side of all these things. It's not a point on your sheet, but there's a disproportionate impact Christians will have. And there's a weird irony about this too. You would think, you would think that, man, what a great deal. God has sent his people. He's called his people to himself and saved them. And he said, turn around and go back. Bless those people. Love those people. Serve those people. Show them how good and patient I am. Show them how I can take a train wreck and put it back together. He doesn't just say those things. It's not like the world is celebrating and applauding. Oh, look at you. You just made my workplace so wonderful by not fudging your timesheet. Or, man, I love it that you just didn't participate in the gossip. No, 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 no. Everyone in this room has been spiritually dead before God came to you. So we all are familiar with remembering this. That the world, is Jesus, as, as John says in John chapter 1, the light has come into the world. What did he say? The world hated the light because the world loved darkness. Just like when, think about the things that you and I do when we turn out the lights. And if someone rushes in and turns on the lights and sees what you're doing, that's the way the world responds to light. The exposing effect of light is threatening. And so what comes back from these kinds of things isn't applause, but it's often persecution. It's not compliments most of the time, but it's insults and pushback. And the reason why, and all of us know this, because we were all dead and in darkness and bound to decay at one point in our lives or are now. So we're all on the same page here. We remember well how invested we were in the status quo or are invested in the status quo now. We didn't want things to change. It's inconvenient to be confronted with the fact that you might be wrong. Maybe there really is something to this Jesus person, this Bible. That is massively inconvenient, right? To have to readjust everything in your life at that point. I was 24 when the lights came on for me by God's grace. That's a lot of life that I lived in the dark. That's a lot of regrets. That's a lot of mistakes. That's a lot of, whoa, I made it through most all of my life with the lights turned out. I was invested in my life. I had relationships, I had patterns, I had behaviors that I did not want to leave. My initial reaction to the kingdom of God was not applause. Oh, this is awesome. It was wanting to crucify the representatives of that kingdom. I thought they were judgmental even though they weren't. I thought they were looking down at me even though they weren't. I thought they were prudes and bores even though they weren't. I pushed back against it. I hurled insults even if they were secret, because I didn't want to have to deal with the possibility that maybe there's something more than meets the eye. Maybe they've been made new. Maybe I'm in need of that myself. The kingdoms of the world, a guy named Sinclair Ferguson says, and then we'll, we'll end, he says, the kingdoms of the world like the idea of intolerance, but never the practice of it. The world in which we live assumes that it will welcome Christians with open arms, until the first time it meets the genuine article. Until then, it's ignorant of its real response to the gospel. It assumes that it's well disposed to Jesus Christ and to God. 
But Scripture tells us otherwise. The world is in rebellion against God. Real loyalty to Jesus creates friction in the hearts of those who only pay him lip service. Here's where we end. It is in that moment when who you are as a rescued and renewed person is creating friction in your family, in your dorm, in your relationships with your boss. It's in that moment that Jesus says, blessed are you. Blessed are those of you who are persecuted for his sake, for righteousness sake. Not blessed are you when someone hurts your feelings because of something you did. Blessed are you when for Jesus' sake you're persecuted. That's when he says rejoice and be glad for the kingdom is yours. Jesus is encouraging you. And the huge important point at the end of this is that Christian, the thing the world most needs from you is the very thing we are most inclined to hide. Because I'm like you. I don't want to be the center of unwanted attention, right? I don't want everyone in the room to look at me in a negative way or in a, man, look at this, look at this super religious guy. He's so crazy. Think about, I don't want to be that guy, and I know you don't either, and God knows you don't want to be that person. But he says the very thing that makes you so different, that makes you stand out, is the very thing the world most needs from you. It is what your friends and your roommates and your parents most desperately need from you. And it's the very thing that we are most prone to hide under a bowl or to take away the saltiness from. The gospel is this. You wonder, man, this this is a lot for me to do. No, it's a lot for you to rejoice in because there is one person who's ever lived who didn't forget his saltiness or his light. And it was the true salt of the earth, the true light of the world. What John 1 says, the light has come into the world. Jesus Christ, he remembers what his relationship with the world was to be like. He didn't have to have the DTR. He remembered what the relationship was supposed to look like. That it was a relationship of their need and his provision. Our desperation and his arrival. Our guilt and his innocence, our death and his life, he remembered, friends. And if you've never taken Jesus seriously, you don't know what the Bible's all about, that's what it's about. The story of the salt coming to preserve you from decay. It's the story of the light coming to usher you out of the darkness. The response is to stop seeing God as evil, as a murderer. And to start seeing the devil as evil and a murderer. And God is the life giver who has come to rescue you and save you. If you're united to Jesus, Christian, with me, repent of hiding the very thing your friends most need you to be. And let's go back out into the world owning and embracing who we are. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. There would be no hope in this passage. If if you had not come to us with your grace and made us alive, then we would just hear this as moralism, as, as ethics, as a lecture about how to make ourselves better. But we can't do that. You have to be the one to change us. So for my friends in here who were like me for 24 years of my life, not knowing you, running from you, hating you, I pray that they would see you, the light, coming into their darkness tonight. And for those of my friends in here who are alive, I pray that we would not just love you, but love the world 
by letting the world see us as we are and not hiding. We pray this in your name and for your sake. Amen.